family tree, this is more like a noxious weed. <laughs> this is an outfit who make the Adams family look like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Let's begin with the Williams, shall we? Who would you rather sit next to at a family reunion? William Rufus shot with an arrow through the throat by one of his toy boys while out hunting stag? Or perhaps William of Orange, responsible for the slaughter of millions of Irish? And at Christmas time, what would you give the Henry who has everything? <laughs> A life in exile, most probably. There's Henry II, who locked up his wife for 11 years to have it off with a woman 20 years his junior. Henry IV and Henry VII, who murdered their cousins. Henry VI, well, he'd come in handy at Christmas time since he was stark raving mad and thought he was Jesus Christ most of the time. <laughs> Or perhaps Henry VIII, he certainly had the size and the whiskers to play Santa Claus, but you'd take your life in your hand sitting on his knee. <laughs> That's if you could bear the smell from his advanced syphilis. Even his doctors couldn't in the end. Stick with me, just beginning. A very funny bit from a very funny woman. Wendy Harmer, our special guest on Speakola today, and we're going to be featuring the comedy debates of the 1990s, and in particular one she delivered on the subject of the royal family. But before we get there, a plug for our sponsor, The Podcast Reader, episode six out shortly. It's a magazine, a print magazine, but also a PDF, where long-form podcasts are recorded as transcripts. Episode 6 has a portrait of Winston Churchill on the cover. And there's content from the Good Life podcast, The Knowledge Project, a podcast of one's own, and ABC Conversations. ABC Conversations did an episode with me in 2020. It's called The Speech Collector. Get your copy of The Podcast Reader. Go to podread.org or email hello at podread.org and ask for a free copy of the PDF and mention Speakola. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy, change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speakola. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Speakola with Tony Wilson. Hello, Speakola listener. I'm addressing you in the singular as they teach you at the ABC. Talk to them as if they're just one person out there. Feels like you're having a coffee, a chat. They really do that. Listen to them. I actually don't usually do that. I say hello to the multitudes. We're such a popular podcast. Hello to you all. And welcome to what's going to be a great episode. It features a legend of Australian comedy, Wendy Harmer. It is Tony Wilson at the Speakola at Coalface. We don't really have a lot of coal burning. It's quite a clean fuel operation, Speakola. One employee, me, and it's been a great couple of weeks, actually. I've been, I feel like I've been dabbling in a bit of oral history, getting around interviewing people. I've been making another podcast. It's called 
COVID Roulette, Stories from the Pandemic. So if you're in for a bit of virus talk, look up COVID Roulette. Been working on my next book, which is a biography of Alan Jeans. If you want to read the previous one, the one that got me the gig to do this, it's called 1989, The Great Grand Final, available with all my other books at TonyWilsonAuthor.com. And I've been doing my usual speakola bits and bobs, which include spots on the ABC, do a every three weeks spot with Sammy J on breakfasts on Thursday mornings at 6.40am. Get up early for that one, Melburnians. And on Brisbane ABC with Kat Feeney, I've been going through the archives of the ABC, listening to great speeches, talking about great speeches. We did King George VI's Victory in Europe speech this week. And if you want to get behind Speakola, as I say every week, we've got the Patreon subscribers. I think 51 of them now, patreon.com forward slash Speakola. That's in the show notes. Or go to the Speakola site itself to the donate button. Any help, much appreciated. I flagged it at the outset, but what a guest I have today. One of my favourites, not just because she's been right behind Speakola, almost from day one, sending me her beautiful eulogy for the restaurateur and great friend of Wendy's, Mietta O'Donnell, but also because she's been such a great performer for so long in Australian media and comedy. Most recently, she was on 702 doing the morning show there, but before that, she was on Today FM. She was a star of FM radio. And before that, stand-up comedy right back to the 80s with venues like The Last Laugh and Le Joke. She talks a lot about that in this episode but also on television with The Big Gig and World Series Debating, which is the focus of this episode. It was a grandiose title, World Series Debating. It was about as world as the American World Series Baseball. It was definitely Australian, and it was so popular on ABC television in the early to mid-90s. It featured on each side, on opposing teams, Andrew Denton. He's been on this podcast We had an episode on his eulogy for the great John Clark, who Wendy mentions in this episode as well, and Wendy Harmer as the captain of the other team. We're going to talk a bit about the comedy debate form, but a lot of this episode is also just talking about Wendy's amazing career, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Well, I've been looking forward to this one. Since Speakola started, one of my best backers in the Australian media is my guest today. It is Wendy Harmer, and not only has she given me great speeches for the website, she's also put me on her radio show in Sydney when she was broadcasting to all of New South Wales and beyond. So you've been a Speakola saint, Wendy. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, and it just so happens that I was at lunch yesterday with Richard Walsh, who wrote uh, that great book about eulogies, and your name was mentioned in dispatches. Well, thank you. Your eulogy is for your great friend, Mietta O'Donnell, and that is a brilliant speech. Look that one up. But today we're actually going to focus on your, I guess it's your day job and your night job. You've been a legendary comedian in Australia, and we're going to talk about the World Championship debating or the ABC comedy debates that went on in the early to mid-90s. I'm looking forward to that, Wendy. Well, that was such an extraordinary time. Yes, you're right. World Series 
debating. 1992 <laughs> to 1995, it was put together by Ted Robinson, the legendary director of the Gillies Report and the Big Gig. And what happened was there was a series of debates that were hugely popular on the ABC. Andrew, the, the head of one team, and me, the head of the other, he usually beat me, but I would say I was robbed. <laughs> In terms of how you got the gig, Wendy, I mean, you were a fixture on television by that point, but can you talk a little bit about getting into speaking and stand-up and, and how a comedy career happened for you? Well, it's uh, it's such a weird – it was really, I have to say, Tony, uh, like running away and joining the circus. I was a political reporter – with the Sun News Pictorial back in the day, I'd been doing sort of local politics. I was slated to go to state rounds and then I had great, great ambitions to go to London and be a foreign correspondent. And I was asked by the features editor to go to Melbourne University and do a story about this so-called new cabaret because there was so much action coming out of London and... Uh, the likes of Dawn French and, you know, all Alexis Sale and all those amazing comedians, Adrian Edmondson. It was called sort of the new cabaret, for want of a better word, and the features editor sent me along to review this night. Well, I sat there in the auditorium and I watched the most amazing show. There was um, Richard Stubbs doing stand-up. There was David Argue on skates, racing around the stage. There was Los Trios Ring Barkas. Gina Riley was in a girly sort of group, a singing group. Steve Vizard was doing Frank Sinatra with Paul Grabowski on the piano. And I just watched <laughs> this thing and I thought, oh, my God, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. So I wrote the article for the newspaper and then within a couple of weeks, I decided that I was going to quit <laughs> and I was going to become a stand-up comedian. Completely ridiculous. I've heard, you know, subsequently that a lot of my colleagues were having a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a conference behind my back saying, oh, my God, who's going to tell her? I mean, so anyway, so what I did is I quit my job. I went to the then Melbourne Times, a free independent newspaper, where I was able to work three days a week, indulge my love of state politics and become a stand-up comedian by night. And so I really didn't kind of know how a female stand-up comedian would sound so I bought some records, vinyl records. I had Whoopi Goldberg, Jane Rivers. I had Steve Martin, Woody Allen. And I played those on rotation and I thought, how would it sound if I were being a stand-up comedian and a woman and Australian? And then, you know, some... Months later, I took myself off to an open mic night at Le Joke at the Last Laugh. And the amazing thing about this is, is that everyone that I knew said, oh, my God, it's going to be so terrible for you, so nervous, even backstage on the night, which was an all-bloke night, people were saying, oh, you're going to be so nervous, how are you going to cope and all that. 
Anyway, what happened was I walked out onto the stage in front of the microphone and I had what I like to call an epiphany where I suddenly realised, hang on a minute, you mean I get the microphone and people pay to come and hear me? I thought, <laughs> well, this is the best gig ever. And I swear to God, when those lights went on, I went, here I am. Here's where I'm supposed to be. And were you always that woman or girl? Like, can you take us back to whatever created this confidence and, and this verbal skill as well? Were you, were you doing something similar in terms of entertaining your own family or entertaining your friends or being the class clown? Or wh- Where's the history of this? Well, I, you know, I was born with a um, double cleft lip and palate, Tony. And so for me... Being able to speak and enunciate particularly was a real achievement. You know, my dad used to have me, even as a little kid, before I had my major surgery in my teens, standing on the kitchen table reading from the newspaper or singing even if it was behind a door. And I remember dad as the, you know, a headmaster, he even cast me in... A, a huge choir in Bendigo as a soloist because I was always a tidy singer and I always have been. And so from there I got that, you know, that incredible encouragement to say my piece. But I know I'd never, ever performed before. And part of it, I think, was because I come from a, a history where a lot of people had looked at me and said, oh, you know, what happened to you? And look at that really funny lady and, you know, where? And I thought, you know, if if you're going to stare at me, I'm going to give you something to stare about. I mean, it's as, it's as ridiculous as that, really. But more than that, here is the interesting thing, I think. I loved the writing as well. I loved the conceits. I loved the way that the... Uh, the jokes were constructed. And so when I actually started out in comedy, I actually spent quite a good bit of time sort of writing things and going to other comedians and asking them if they would perform them. And of course, no one, you know, wanted to perform my bits of comedy. So I ended up really just performing my own work in some ways I've always felt that the sort of smartest and most clever I've ever felt is when the words go down on the page and the performance of it is almost secondary. That's what I used to think. I kind of think a little bit differently now, but but so I get an enormous joy out of the out of the writing. And in terms of how you got picked for the debates, I guess the show The Big Gig is the one where most of us remember meeting you. It must have been amazing, this show. It was such a, a, a phenomenon and, and it probably changed your life overnight. Can you tell us a bit about being part of the cast and, and, and what the big, big gig meant? Well, do you, know, do you want to know how that happened? Yeah. So I was performing at The Last Laugh doing a stage show with Richard Stubbs and Jane Turner and I kind of writ- I've, I've kind of written most of it. We had two shows. One was um, Sunburn, Bloody Sunburn and sunburn the day after. And the idea was it was a sketch show for all the people who were stuck in Melbourne who couldn't go away on holidays. 
so all the sketches were about going to Rosebud Beach or Japanese tourists or the police or, you know, the van with the icy cold cans of Coke. Anyway, this, this show, it was upstairs at Le Joke and it became such a hit that John Pinder took it downstairs. So it had stand-up and it had sketches, you know, all that sort of stuff. And one night John Clark came along and there, at this particular time, the I think it was the Victorian government had given a bit of a grant to a few people to try and develop comedy. It's where, you know, Tony Martin and Mick Malloy and The Late Show sort of came from. Yeah. And so apparently John Clark stood up the back and he said, who wrote this? And someone said, well, Wendy did most of it. Not at all. Not you know. Obviously, I didn't write Richard stands up, etc. Anyway, a couple of I mean, I don't know, a week later or whatever, this person I never heard of rang and said, "Look, we're doing this show for the ABC. How would you like to come along and do some workshops at a church hall in uh, Elwood?" And I saw a Julie went along, and of course there was Patrick Cook, and there was Ted Robinson, and there was Max Gillies. And I swear to God, within about a week later, they said, right, well, we're doing the TV show. Can you be on set? In and I'll be, it was that ridiculously amazing and stupid and fun and weird and everything that happened from that. And then from the Gillies report, see, I'd been doing stand-up this whole time as well. So after the Gillies report finished, um, I, I was in London working and, you know, making my name as a stand-up around, around town and overseas. And I was invited along uh, on Ben Elton's Friday Night Live yep. for an Australian special and there was me, the, uh, the Doug Anthony All-Stars and Dame Edna Everidge. So I sort of took a video of this thing <laughs> and I brought it back to Australia and... Ted Robinson said, well, we have to do it here. We have to do it here. And so he took it to ABC management. Of course, they immediately wanted a bloke to be the host and not me. So that's how that show happened. I've got to tell you a little funny story here. My uh, late brother, Noel, my younger brother, Noel, I brought home this video and I asked him, look, can you put it on a VHS so... Ted can show the people in the ABC, you know, what, you know, they're looking at. Anyway, so my brother Noel puts it on a VHS and he, everyone's sitting around and I, I hand this to Ted and he's sitting around the boardroom and he's showing everybody, well, guess what? On the end of it comes up hardcore porn. <laughs> and you know... This is a little-known fact. That hardcore porn was used as a sort of interstitials on the on the empty pocket sketches. You know, they used to have those little pops <laughs> of this sort of hardcore porn. Well, that came from I can't my brother's. Remember. My bro- that came from my brother's tape, and your that, gift to the culture. And Ted, <laughs> Ted tells me that apparently there's all blokes sitting around in the boardroom. As this thing of 
May and Dame Edna and the Doug Anthony segues <laughs> into this and one of them turns around and says, well, she seems to be a pretty good sport. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, I swear to God that is true. And you've told me that you used to get, you know, all sorts of mail, obviously lots of very positive mail as well, but but it was a, a brutal feedback system <laughs> and you were sometimes protected from it. Is that right? Well, I think the, the point to make here, Tony, is that in those days, because there was no social media, we were very much protected from what the audience had to say. Now, I can't remember what this program was. I can't remember whether it was the big gig or the Gillies Report. But Patrick Cook had made a cartoon, like in Stonehenge figures, that I think spelled out something like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and if people were mean to us, he used to send that by fax. <laughs> but, but but there were no people carping and complaining every single night and especially about me and I think that's why I was able to find the courage to go on unencumbered but what um because people had to write by snail mail back then and what Ted had done he had kept all these terrible letters and some of them were so awful, you know, they were commenting on my, you know, facial scars saying, oh, does she have to shave before she gets, you know, on screen and all this stuff about me being a bull dyke and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, Ted, would he collected all those letters. I never saw them and he kept them in his desk drawer and he tells me that one day I was looking for some, I don't know, stationery or something and I found the whole lot of them. <laughs> And so, you know, that was kind of really devastating, but certainly not like as we have today, the kind of drip, 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 drip of hatred and vitriol that you might get if you're in comedy today. So I do actually count myself extremely lucky. The other thing I count myself extremely lucky for is that I always say that if I hadn't sort of turned up as a, uh, an Australian woman stand-up comedian, at the time that I did, I think someone would have had to invent me. Yeah. Because, because, you know, we had all that culture coming in from overseas and I think there was, in some ways, there was just a little vacancy there, which me, being quite canny, said, wow, I think being an Australian stand-up comedian could be a quite good thing. And, you know, so that did very well for me. Well, take us to the debates because that's what we're going to feature at the end yeah. of the episode. So when did that invitation come and do you remember the first contact and how you started to build what would be your sort of de- debate persona? Well, I think, look, it came after the big gig, obviously, in 1992 and Ted and I were, you know, we were I, – because I, I'd also, don't forget, I'd done a series of my own called In Harmer's Way after the big gig. And, you know, it fared sort of pretty well in Series 1, but it kind of really wasn't the... And I was offered a second series, but it kind of wasn't where I wanted to go. So we were actively talking about next projects and Andrew, obviously, Andrew Denton was in there talking about next projects. And so this one came up. I can't claim 
the invention of it this time, or the name, but World Series Debating, 1992 to 1995. And do you remember getting started? Do you remember the first one? And, and was it different to stand-up? Did you Was a different writer's hat went on, or was it very similar to stand-up? Let's be as funny as we can and get as many jokes in as we can. Well, I think actually I was really lucky that it sort of combined both my skills as being a journalist and being a comedian. So let me just uh, refresh folks who are just listening in here about some of the questions that we considered and how it all sort of went down. So it wasn't really Oxford debate rules because um, that was a lot more formal and I think in Oxford debate that people from the floor get to ask and whatever, whatever. But Campbell McComas, uh, the wonderful late great Campbell McComas, was the was the moderator, and he had a shtick all of his own, and his bow tie, and his tux with his bell, and he, he was in a throne, and, and so the idea was um, Andrew had his team. There was him and two other folk, and I had my team of me and two others, and some of the questions that we considered over that series, series season one that elections are a waste of time, that television is bad for you, that Australia needs the royal family, that men deserve more respect. And, of course, you know, you know, I was cast on the other side. He <laughs> 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 would often do that. He'd put you on the side that you didn't want to be on, that God has no sense of humour. That was a doozy. Yeah. That football is stupid. That sex has killed romance, that science is a health hazard, that beauty is better than brains and it went on from there. And what, you know, and can I just tell you some of the people who came to play with us? These yeah. are names that everyone will know, of course. Um, Jean Kitson, Lex Marinos, Tim Ferguson, Greg Pickaver, Robin Archer, Robin Williams, Jonathan Biggins. Alan Saunders, Anthony Morgan, Philip Adams, Mikey Robbins. Uh, we had a politician, Steve Crabb, Bronwyn Bishop, Joan Kerner. It was it was a real who's who. Andrew used to, as I say, pretty much beat me hollow. Um, <laughs> but I learned not to care about the result. Until this to this day, I still maintain that in his rebuttals he spent an inordinate amount of time commenting on my physical appearance and I'm not ever going to forgive him for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about writing a comedy debate. I mean, what would you say if you were sitting down to do any of those topics? What's the first job? What would go through your mind? Well, address the argument. Address the argument. I mean, I would often – and the debates become so popular, honestly, you couldn't swing a cat without running into a comedy debate somewhere – but I did think that there was there, there was often a bit of laziness here where a stand-up comedian would often say, you know, give you two sentences of something new and then, you know, drag out a bit of old rope. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it's going to work for the audience. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. But was it in the spirit of the thing? Hmm. Let's, we could talk about that for a while. But I think a really... I think the success of the early series before, as I say, every single auditorium, every RSL, every golf club, every, you know, whatever, every charity put on a comedy debate, I think the spirit was and why people sort of liked it in the first instance, it was that because we actually did address the issue. 
So if I was to sit down and say, is beauty better than brains, I would not trot out an old bit of stuff, and I have plenty, but I would actually address it anew. And, of course, there were a lot of people who were coming in who were from, well, they were academics, they were lawyers, they were politicians, they were publishers, they were all of those. And these are people who are actually addressing the topic and they don't have comic shtick. So you really had to... You really had to concentrate, you know what I mean, Tony? You, it was, there was no... And, of course, I never had that much old rope anyway over that kind of um, punishing schedule because we went all around Australia. We were in Old Parliament House. Uh, we went to, I think, near almost every state. So you really had to write. I mean, that was the point. You had to write something. It had to be cogent. It had to be funny. And I think the thing that was really most important of all, every every speaker had about seven minutes each. Right? Yep. So then you, as the team leader, would have to sum up what had just happened. And, of course, that did uh, require a good deal of writing on the spot, sort of mental agility, writing jokes on the spot. So by the time you came up to do the summation, you just tore absolute strips off the off the opposite team humiliating them in the practice but that was <laughs> but that was sort of the aim of the game really it was pretty brutal it really was i've been watching the the royal family one and um paul lynham for example he i think calls you queen of the verbal stiletto australian <laughs> feminism's answer to saturation bombing you know like it was <laughs> <laughs> I know. And who will follow Bly? Why, of course, Wendy Hitwoman Harmer. <laughs> Queen of the verbal stiletto. Australian feminism's answer to saturation bombing. <laughs> will we hear? Will we hear, ladies and gentlemen, from Miss Harmer any echo of sympathy or compassion towards the woman who spoke so movingly of her Annis Horribilis? <laughs> of course we will not. And after all, Princess Annis is probably the least Horribilis of the whole bunch. <laughs> all she seems to want out of life is a bag of oats and a good rub down. It's just a... a really every... Every member of the debate got into the spirit of you're going to swing a lot of punches in these oh, yeah. few minutes. Oh, yeah. yeah. And as I say, Andrew, um, I would, I was, you know, had quite the flair, the fashion flair at the time. And, I, and I've got some pictures of me as well. I used to wear these sort of dark suits with this kind of outlandishly big sort of felt flowers on my lapel. Yeah. Well, do you think Andrew Denton didn't make hay out of that? Yeah. So it was really take no prisoners, absolutely take no prisoners. And uh, I'm sure you're going to ask me, I wonder if the same could be done today. Well, I will ask you that. Would these debates be successful today? I mean, I, I heard some lines and I, and I thought, oh, Wendy Harmer on 702 in 2020 wouldn't say that line um, and particularly it was actually the homosexuality stuff um, the 
references to and all the debaters did it it was kind of this throwaway thing where um i think you used the expression questionable sexuality for the royal family just as a throwaway and i thought that probably wouldn't be said now like we'd all check ourselves absolutely and we would and i think that that is you know like Obviously, the, the, the sensibilities of an audience changes. Obviously, it does. And it's really interesting to look back at those debates. I mean, they're a, they're a few years ago now. What are they, 30 years ago? Yeah. So a lot of changes in, the, in that time. Look, to be honest with you, when I was doing stand-up, even when I began at Le Joke all those years ago, there were routines that... Uh, about, you know, homosexuality and, you know, that the audience hated back then, Yeah, you know. So I would absolutely trust the audience. I would utterly acknowledge, of course, that there's a lot of stuff that all of us would have done that we wouldn't do now. But yeah, even, you know, back in those days we were – you know, challenging and poking this sort of earnest wave of feminism. Yeah. But I think the audience, the one thing I think is problematic here, though, is if you feel that you are a comedian and you can't say what you want to say or you don't feel comfortable with what you want to say and you have to preface every joke with saying, well, I hope this is not going to offend the blah, blah and this mob and that mob and that mob. It kind of does, um, it does, it, it does sort of, uh, what does it do? Blunt? Yes, that's a word. It blunts what you want to say. I mean, it's so funny that I should talk to you today because my daughter was just looking and she, she and my husband were sharing this hilarious, you know, hilarious video of Ricky Gervais hosting the Oscars and some of the jokes there, I thought, oh, my God, he could so not tell those jokes now. Yeah. And I don't mean that it's a bad thing. I really don't. I think it's just that comedy evolves and what the audience wants evolves. And I don't think there's, you know, the comedy police getting around and sort of bashing people. But I do think... That I mean, a comedian, a good comedian, will always find a way. I think they'll always find a way through even the most severe kind of restrictions and uh, you know uh, thought police. They'll always find a way to be funny, and so that's the comedian's skill. So I don't subscribe to um, being one of those people who says that PC has killed comedy. Honestly, I watched PC Kill Comedy back in about 1983. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, you mentioned that one of your pieces got picked up as, as one of the best pieces of sports writing of that era. Have you, have you got that in front of you? Well, thank you. That's a Dorothy Dixer. Thank you. <laughs> this is from uh, the debate that we did that football is stupid. Okay, so I was really, really thrilled. It's a huge tone, um, but it's, okay, it's a little bit of hit here. And I'm just, Tony, I know you love your footy. I do. So in the spirit of PC, I want to apologise if you're offended, okay? I'll be right. Okay. 
Football is so stupid, not everyone can play. To qualify, you have to wear a boot size bigger than your IQ. If I said I was going to spend the afternoon with the axe, mad dog, bozo, captain blood, buttocks, tin legs, plugger, the moose, blocker, cracker and cement, you would think that A, I was going to a meeting of the New South Wales ALP right, B, I had just been selected for Paul Keating's Republican Committee or C, that I was off to play a game of footy. I'm sorry, football is stupid and the blokes who play it are stupid too. These are blokes who wear two pairs of shorts at the same time. These are blokes who secure their ears to their head with electrical tape. Now, in what other pursuit do you have to do that, I mean, apart from oral sex? Why do you think so many of them appear in calendars with no clothes on? Because they're like four-year-olds who can't dress themselves and all have baths together. And while we're on the subject, those good-looking young blokes you see in the calendars, the ones with the smooth, unscarred torsos, all their joints intact, and a full complement of cartilage, they're the before pictures. When they sustain enough neuron damage, they become commentators. <laughs> now, I do like this a little bit. Can I go on? Yeah, yeah. Now, look at, let's look at the Brains Trust who administrate football, a bunch of no-hopers who couldn't organise a barbecue in their own carport. Instead of building a grandstand, these are blokes who fire up earth-moving equipment and make a hill. And even then they can't make a simple calculation of how far away to put the kiosk so you can't get back to your seat while your bucket of chips is still hot. They can't even decide on the rules. First it's a three-yard rule, then a five-metre rule, then a ten-metre rule. No wonder there's some poor bastard called a dummy half. And if the game, the players, the commentators and the administrators are stupid, how about the collective minds of thousands of rabid football fans gathered in one place? I'll give you a contribution to the nation's cultural life. 50,000 idiots at Lang Park shouting as one, Bullshit! <laughs> well, Wendy, you're one of us. That's another topic where you were put on the other side because you are one of us, aren't you? You're yeah, I do love my, I do love my uh, league, I must say. Yeah. Take us to this one event. Take us to the one we're going to feature, the Royal Family Debate. Um, do you remember this night? There was, it, was a, it was a cast of, of luminaries. Oh, Can yeah. you tell us a bit about th- this particular record? Oh, my gosh. Now, who was on? You've seen it just recently. So we have Paul Lynham. The late and great McCampbell was still there. Yeah, Paul, Campbell McComas doing all his verbal trickery. There was lots of – he loved to invert phrases and pick up one idea in, in one line and flip it back on its head in the other. And they were always very fast and clever intros, weren't they? Mm. And tell folk who else was, were on the teams. So Paul Lynham was yep. debating in favour of the royal family and then there was Bronwyn Bishop mm-hmm. in favour of the monarchist as well and then – Andrew Denton for the monarchist. And then on your side, there was Malcolm Turnbull, uh, Graham Richardson and you. And we did it in Canberra and it was, oh, my gosh. I mean, with all the debates, we were always encouraged to go and pre-prepare and meet the, you know, our, our team members before we got to the debate. So I had to go to Malcolm Turnbull's chambers. Yeah. And... 
I remember walking in there, this was sort of wood panelled amazing office overlooking, you know, Sydney Harbour or whatever and just feeling so kind of intimidated. I mean, he was, well, let me put it this way, he, he was pretty sure of himself, but in the end <laughs> I think I was pretty sure of myself too. So, But it, but it was actually quite intimidating. But, um, yeah, so it was like it was absolutely full on. And as you say, I look back at my rant now. I've got to admire my great jacket and fabulous hair. But, um, man, I just went for it. Those Princess Diana jokes, I mean, honestly. So she, she'd attempted suicide. And, I know. And, I know. And you I know. To, you gave it to her for her ineffective effort, effectively. It was, it was brutal. Uh, but then you also um, went through, it was a really good device. I have to say, you had me laughing 30-odd years later with this device of looking at the names, all the different major names, and you went all the way back to William of Orange and the Williams and the Henrys and the... And the Richards, and they all got a mention, and their contribution to the world eviscerated. <laughs> well, as, as I say, as I say, I and, I and I think that everyone in that debate, they did, you know, bring their A game. Let me put it that way. And, and let me tell you this, actually, this is really worth saying, Tony, that if I thought that I was intimidated by these people who are coming along and Bronwyn Bishop and Paul Lynham and Richo and, you know, all that, they were probably even more intimidated to coming along to a debate with Andrew and I and having to come up with gags, which was completely not their natural habitat. So I think part of what we had to do in a lot of those debates was we had to spend a lot of time nursing, <laughs> nursing through um, our team members who were, like a lot of them, completely freaked out by the fact that they were going to be on national television not only arguing but have, having to in some ways score the laughs and that was pretty unnatural territory for them. Yeah, you can see Bronwyn Bishop really battling with it and not, not a natural joke teller, which you, I think, <laughs> served oh, up to her I didn't in the take, opening line. I didn't take advantage of her, did I? Surely. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you did go the tonk to some extent. Oh, well, you know. I did, go, did you just say go the tonk? Yeah, that's a bit of a cricket expression. Oh, I do love that phrase. It's excellent. I haven't heard it for years. Love it. Go to Tom. Yeah. And watching Andrew sum up, I mean, I think you both got your styles. I mean, you had such tight and funny scripts, but Andrew really has that prowling the stage, no notes. He either memorized it or he can just go off the top of his head at mm -hmm. the drop of a hat. He was a very impressive performer, wasn't he, in terms of debating? He'd been doing it since he was a kid. This is my dream. It's so big, perhaps too big, but damn it, we voted for Paul Keating. Logic isn't high on our list of priorities. Is this dream too big for you, you pointless, petty, grey men and women with your politics? Then step aside, because it's not too big for these people. I know you share my dream. An Australia of opportunity with a royal on every corner and enough tourist dollars to make everyone rich. It'll be so beautiful. <laughs> Does Australia need the royal family? I say to you emphatically, yes! <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. Well, Andrew, uh, you know, um, would memorize stuff. I was actually really, um, I don't know what I was doing, but I was so busy I couldn't memorize everything. So I was off, often reading. But he was able to spend a little more time memorizing stuff, and that was really impressive. But I did him in the eye a few times. <laughs> Have we got time to tell you about the great? Um, Kerry Packer debate. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you where this all led to. I mean, as you say, it became a bit of a, a, a craze. There were comedy debates everywhere you looked. But tell us, tell us what it meant to you and, and, and what you began to be asked to do. Well, uh, I, you know, I was asked to do debates up in Hill and Downdale. I'm sure Andrew, you know, had the same. Uh, for many of them, these were charities. And so it was really terrific. I could just rock up and, you know, Lend my, you know, lend my name, and people can make money for their charity. So that that was, you know, that was a good thing. Anyway, I don't think I've ever told this story in public. Yeah. So years years ago, um, not long after those debates were on, well, while they maybe while they were on, I get a call from my agent, and it's Kerry Packer, and he wants to do a debate at his. Polo retreat yeah. in New South Wales, Elliston. And apparently he said to my agent, get that woman off the TV. Yeah. And the topic was, is polo better than sex? <laughs> right. And it was really funny. This is the, this is apparent. Well, I'll tell you what he said to me when we got there. So my husband, Brennan, and I rock up to this place in the Hunter Valley, which is, you know, this storied sort of, you know, estate. Life-size uh, statues of elephants and gorillas and I don't know, I can't remember, bison or whatever. And we go and stay in, and it's got its own shop and its own bakery and everything. It's just sort of these acres of these polo fields. And... We stay in kind of the manager's residence, and you'll love this, Tony. I think uh, the cricket was on at the time. It was on Channel 9, and there was a live feed into the master bedroom without the ads. Really? Which we thought was pretty fantastic. Yeah. So the, the thing that was paying for Kerry Packer's product, he didn't want to be assailed with it himself. <laughs> he got them cut. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Anyway. Yeah. So we rock up on the night to do the debate and it's in a little theatreette and we're standing around having drinkies and this and that and uh, Kerry Packer sidles up and he says to me, he says, you are never, ever to repeat what's happened here this evening. I'm like, holy shit, what's going to happen? Anyway, he, you know, he, he was just making the point this is a private affair. And so... After a few drinks, we went into this sort of. We went, we went into a, the theatreette. I think it would have maybe, maybe I don't know how many folk it would have seated, but not more than maybe eighty to one hundred people, and in very plush lounge chairs. And the topic was, as I say, is polo better than sex? And on the yes, polo is better than sex side. We're actually polo players. <laughs> yeah. And in the audience, we're also a lot of polo players. <laughs> and you had to def- you had to go into bat for sex, did you? <laughs> I lost in the end. <laughs> I, 
He said to me a funny thing, uh, uh, Kerry Packer, make of this what you will. He said, I've always thought the difference between you and Andrew Denton was, he says, Andrew Denton makes these jokes which they look like they should be really funny but they never make you laugh. And he said, in your jokes, uh, they make me laugh but then I look back at them and go, why did I even laugh at that? Well, I guess it's the difference between you're coming from comedy and Andrew's coming from presenting, isn't he? He's well, like, stand-up is, stand is not his natural element. Well, I don't know. I don't think that does either of us down, to tell you the truth. But, um, <laughs> that's from Kerry Packer anyway. So after the debate, we sat, uh, where my husband and I sat and, you know, the various folks, we sat chatting with Kerry Packer till for like four o'clock in the morning and he, he was... A really engaging and interesting and funny person, you know. So for years afterwards, um, when, you know, when I was a smoker and I would be out at events and um, I would see Kerry across the room and we'd go, what do you reckon? What do you we both hair out into the undergrowth and have a sniff cigarette <laughs> together, <laughs> which is, you know, kind of, anyway, whatever. But um, that, I think... Uh, was the weirdest thing that ever happened to me in terms of, you know, the spin-off of those gigs. But as I say, um, if I were to give if I were to give any lesson to a person who is about to engage in a comedy debate, address the issue. Don't just look for a segue, you know, into something, you know, a routine you've already done before. It's such a great chance to write new gear. Yeah. And also, I would say, don't give a flying fuck about who wins. <laughs> yeah, but the one thing I, I was going to ask you, the laugh or the issue, but I, you were very strong on the laugh. Like you've, even though you say don't, don't deviate into your old rope, you, do, you would definitely say emphasise the joke. Like you have, they come fast, don't they? You've got to find ways of writing quick fire jokes around the issue. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it, well, we are talking comedy debates here, Tony, which is a different thing to, you know, an Oxford debate on a serious subject. So, yeah, you are looking for, you, you are looking for the gags. You're looking for that laugh rate. And, but it doesn't actually, as I'm here to attest, doesn't actually win you a debate. No. <laughs> but it does make, it perhaps makes people go home with a warm, fuzzy feeling, but they'll actually say, Andrew Dent was a lot smarter. <laughs> but I think a lot of your one-liners, I mean, even your exit line for the Windsors is is beautiful. The Windsors are a family you would shift suburbs to avoid. We shifted hemispheres. Oh, that is a... I think you almost, they pulled down the rafters after that one, Wendy. <laughs> oh, look, I, I think, you know, I think <laughs> it is like, I mean, I think actually the World Series debating series was kind of the absolute zenith of, of that genre in Australia. You, you, and, and everyone entered in good spirit and uh, it was just lovely fun. What can I say? It was just really lovely fun. And and do you think that any minds are ever changed? Do comedy debates shift public perception? Well, do you know I think they do? I think there is an outrage model that social media operates by. But I have always thought that 
you can really change minds with comedy. It is subversive. It and it's best it shines like on the dark places. And I think it has over millennia really been able to shift minds and hearts and make people think differently. So I think that the cause of the good old-fashioned comedy debate that's sans outrage, let's face it, Tony. I mean, obviously, you know, they might attract outrage now. But sans outrage, taken in good spirit. I do remember, I remember years ago going to a show, Search for Intelligent Life in the Universe. It was a Lily Tomlin, you know, one-woman show. And she did this extraordinary thing, you know, her, her partner you know, wrote all the scripts, but she was such a fantastic performer. And I remember that there were sort of jokes that she did, sketches that she did, which had the whole audience in tears. And in the middle of those tears, we started laughing. Yeah. And I just felt things shift. I really did. I felt... Um, I, I, I just think that comedy at its best, not cruel or mean or, you know, any of those things, but it does have a real power to shift perception and the craft of someone who can make you laugh and cry, you know, in the same exclamation is something that's really powerful and wonderful and, you know. I don't know whether we ever did that in the comedy debates. We probably had people just chucking shoes at the telly. But um, <laughs> I do think that um, comedy satire has always had the power to do this for us and uh, long may it rain. Uh, and I agree. And it's one thing I love about the Speakola Project as well, the, the finding of the speeches that can intertwine, you know, emotion and humour and and say something about the world. It's kind of the reason I'm doing this. And you know what I love about you, Tony, and what you do with Spicola? Tell me, please, heap praise on me. (laughs) (laughs) You will often find uh, that speech that's given standing on top of a chair in a carport for a loved one that is so eloquent and so moving and so funny and so brilliant and so kind and so humble and so you don't have to be a great orator, well, a statesperson, you know, to be able to put those words together. And I love that about your site. I just love that you find the good and the great and the humble and the kind and the obscure and the famous, whoever they may be who just put words together in a beautiful way and, and move us. And so I really want to thank you for your site. I've been, as you know, you know, I've been following you for years, as you mentioned earlier, and so uh, I wish you all the best in the future and thank you for inviting me to be a part of it again. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for helping me with an episode and so many times along the way, and I appreciate all of that. And thanks, Wendy. Cola. 
Speakola has one podcast sponsor at the moment, the Podcast Reader, podread.org. And if you'd like to also sponsor the podcast, by all means, get in touch. But in the meantime, some more book suggestions by me. There's one book that Wendy Harmer loved. And in fact, she was one of my best spruikers. It's called Players. And it was released some time ago. But it's a sporting parody. It looks at the madness of the sports media, the bad behaviour of a 50-something playboy ex-footballer who might have taken a lot of Botox to the forehead and a few knocks to the head. And he is caught up in a media conspiracy. In 2006, I won Best Young Australian Novelist from the Sydney Morning Herald. Shared the award, in fact, with Marcus Zusak, the book thief. And if you want to read plays, you can buy a copy at TonyWilsonAuthor.com. Which brings us to the speech of the week. I've promised it throughout the episode, but it is Wendy Harmer speaking to the topic that Australia needs, the royal family. The whole debate is up on YouTube and it's definitely worth a watch particularly Paul Lynham and Andrew Denton, both excellent. But Wendy is too, and made me laugh so hard. And here she is, arguing that Australia doesn't need the royal family. She's rapidly become a queen of the airwaves. But that other queen, no way, or at least out of harm's way. Wendy Harmer. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Moderator, Senator Bishop. Bronnie, what a heroic speech that was. Bronnie models herself on Margaret Thatcher, you know. You can see Bronwyn as a modern Queen Bodicea, can't you? Topless, face painted blue on rollerblades. Brave, brave Bronnie. You, you can see you've got to be brave and courageous to dump on your parliamentary leader after he's lost an election. <laughs> Roman, that quaint and old-fashioned uh, con- confection of sentiments takes me back to when I was a small girl. And I guess like most little girls, I daydreamed at my school desk on drowsy February afternoons and I dreamed of being a princess when I grew up. Prince Charlie didn't ever come and knock on the door of my humble dwelling in the farthest corner of the Magic Kingdom. What a shame. (laughs) Who knows, now I could be an unemployed single mother with two young kids. Living on handouts from the in-laws. <laughs> the question tonight, let's get back to the question at hand, do we need the royal family? Now, some of the people here tonight, the friends over here, will be urging you to look beyond the individual transgressions of the family members and consider the benefits of the monarchy as an institution. But of all the institutions there are, the monarchy is the most personal. It is, by definition, a family. So let's just have a look at this family, shall we? (laughs) A bunch of no talent, loony, bloodthirsty layabouts of questionable sexuality with IQs that need watering twice a day. (laughs) A family tree, this is more like a noxious weed. (laughs) This is 
an outfit who make the Adams family look like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> Let's begin with the Williams, shall we? Who would you rather sit next to at a family reunion? William Rufus shot with an arrow through the throat by one of his toy boys while out hunting stag? Or perhaps William of Orange, responsible for the slaughter of millions of Irish? And at Christmas time, what would you give the Henry who has everything? <laughs> a life in exile, most probably. There's Henry II, who locked up his wife for 11 years to have it off with a woman 20 years his junior. Henry IV and Henry VII, who murdered their cousins. Henry VI, well, he'd come in handy at Christmas time since he was stark raving mad and thought he was Jesus Christ most of the time. <laughs> Or perhaps Henry VIII, he certainly had the size and the whiskers to play Santa Claus, but you'd take your life in your hand sitting on his knee. <laughs> That's if you could bear the smell from his advanced syphilis. Even his doctors couldn't in the end. Stick with me, just beginning. Would you rather at your 21st birthday party? Edward I could light the candle since he burned Scotland to the ground three times. <laughs> You'd be wise not to let Edward IV near the bar since he drowned his own brother in a vat of Madeira. <laughs> Edward VIII, well, he wouldn't get through immigration. <laughs> since he abdicated with Wallace Simpson, who on seeing his extremely small penis is said to have remarked to one of his girlfriends, frankly, my dear, my nails are longer. <laughs> At least in the current Prince Edward, you'd have someone qualified to lead the game of charades. <laughs> now, I have to admit the Royal Georges could be fun at a family wedding. George IV, arguably the drunkest king in British history, so fat he had to be hoisted onto his horse by crane. <laughs> and what a choice of speech makers. You've got uh, George I, an ugly German who never spoke a word of English in his life and had a disease which made him drink blood and grow hairs on the back of his hands. <laughs> Funny old Uncle George. <laughs> George II, a madman who used to talk to trees, actually. And um, after a spot of particularly bad advice from a stand of elms, he lost America. <laughs> and as for the royal women, why not put old Mary I, alias Bloody Mary, in charge of the smorgasbord? <laughs> if you fancy your Protestants char-grilled. <laughs> and then there's the unamused Queen Victoria. She'd spend most of her days putting trousers on the dogs and <laughs> long johns on the piano legs. <laughs> the best that can be said of the present monarch and her offspring is that they are breathtakingly dull. <laughs> Princess Charles, Andrew, Edward, the worst you can say is that these boys are just bad in bed. Fault. You know, you can't have playboys or penthouses in Buckingham Palace. How much can you learn about sex from looking at a Gainsborough? <laughs> you can just see old Phil the Greek teaching them about sex, can't you? All right, boys, we can gather right, gather right. Um, Charles, Charles, come to the date. There's a few words, it's Charles. And, uh, and uh, Andrew. 
Eddie, would you take your mother's tiara off? <laughs> right, boys. Well, when one approaches Her Majesty from ten paces behind, with one's hands firmly folded behind one's back, no wonder Fergie thought toe-kissing was exotic. <laughs> and not a lot of sex happening in the royal family at the moment. I don't know how the uh, car Windsor Castle burned down. I'll tell you one way it didn't burn down. That's from a post-coital cigarette. <laughs> not unless Princess Anne was staying over. <laughs> and Princess Di, she's going to commit suicide with a lemon slicer. What's she going to do? Peel herself to death? <laughs> if she was serious, there's a number of ways she could go about it. She could uh, inspect the Royal Marines dressed in an IRA balaclava. <laughs> she could go away with, the, with Charles for the weekend to the, to the country disguised as a fox. <laughs> she could put meaty bites down her underwear and call the corgis. Charles, the future King of England, has visions. Oh, yes, many of them too. Ambitions, but none so grand of those, as those of his forebears. At the moment, the most he sees himself is being is a tampon endlessly swirling in the toilet bowl of life. <laughs> to finish up, what, are we still, what do we owe England? You're talking about a country which once conquered half the world, but whose only recent foray into the stage of international affairs has been to send a stupid fat prince in a helicopter to defend the Falkland Islands. <laughs> only the English would think a godforsaken pile of rocks at the bottom of the world inhabited by inbred goat herders <laughs> who spend their lives Morris dancing and eating fair old jumpers was worth dying for. <laughs> You're talking about a country which has a greengrocer's daughter as its longest serving Prime Minister, a woman related to Nazis as its monarch, Fergie as a fashion plate, an heir to the throne whose ears are so big they cause avalanches, <laughs> Eddie the Eagle as its Olympic team. And then they have the gall to think of themselves as superior, exactly who the English are superior to, ladies and gentlemen, remains an international mystery. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the Windsors, or more properly, the Battenberg Saxe-Coburg Goethes are a family you would shift suburbs to avoid. <laughs> Three shifted hemispheres. <laughs> when next they visit uninvited asking about the spare room, Let's just hide behind the curtain and pretend we're not home. That's it for the episode. Thanks so much to you, Wendy Harmer. Thank you to the ABC as well for the audio from the comedy debate. Thank you to my sponsor, the podcast reader, podread.org or an email, hello at podread.org, asking for the free copy of the PDF. The sponsorship's a bonus, but it's just $100 an episode. So really, to make the podcast financial, I'm hoping that listeners will chip in. Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash speakola. You can choose a $3 a month or an $8 a month. And some generous people have given $20 a month. Or go to speakola.com forward slash donate. 
Big thank you to David Bridie for the theme. Big thank you to Mike Fink, who helps me when I need help. That's it for the episode. Share it with a friend. Join the newsletter. Rate us on iTunes. And speak well without ever using the expression going forward. See you next time.